Hope y'all are doing well. We are in Matthew chapter 27. Um, we've started Matthew uh, forever ago, and today we have found ourselves at Sermon 80-something, uh, starting today in Matthew chapter 27, on a path towards Easter, Resurrection Sunday, more precisely, um, of which we will be looking at the resurrection on Easter, so it's awesome how that worked out. It was kind of planned. But uh, we're going to be starting here today at chapter 27. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get a, a bearing of where we are in about two minutes, and then look at this section today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, what a gift it is to be able to gather together corporately. I pray that as we gather, we would never, ever um, allow ourselves to um, forsake or think less of what's truly going on here, that we get to sing out to the king of the universe together, voices and hearts united together, um, proclaiming your excellencies, souls and minds gathered together, hearing, me included, hearing from God, the Holy Spirit visiting us in this room, leading us into truth and righteousness, convicting us of sin, showing us um, Christ, teaching us about Christ and what he's done for us. I pray that you would come now and you would speak through me and to me and to us all and that we would joyfully submit ourselves to everything we hear in your word. Even if they're things that convict us, in the end, it's what we really need. So I pray, God, that you would come now and do a work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 20, seven chapters ago, you don't need to turn, I'm just going to read it to you really fast. Um, he, Jesus, gave his third foretelling or prophecy of his coming death. He did, he did this four total times in the book of Matthew. The third one, in the book of, uh, I'm sorry, in the chapter 20, he says this, uh, see, we are going to Jerusalem. So he, he turns to him and he explains to him that Jerusalem isn't just some geographical city that you kind of know of, the King of David. For me, this is Jesus talking, for me, Jerusalem means death. And we're going to Jerusalem because there's something that's going to happen. And then he says, the Son of Man, talking of himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. We saw that last week in their sham of a Jewish trial in the middle of the night where they con, uh, condemned him to death for blasphemy. They needed to find some kind of offense that they could find that would, that would give capital punishment. And they couldn't find anything. Witnesses were coming everywhere. Nothing was working out. It says over and over. And then finally, uh, they, they stick him with the charge of blasphemy, which he said he's the son of God, which is actually true, not blasphemy. But they, they say it's blasphemous for him to say that. And says in verse 20, they're gonna, he's going to be condemned over to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn him to death. And then he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and raised on the third day. So this delivered over to the Gentiles section is what we're looking at today. In order for someone to be killed in the first century, um, in, in Judaism, in this particular Roman era, both things had to happen. The, the uh, Jewish trial had to happen and a guilty verdict had to be laid down and then the Roman trial had to come after that. So that's what we're looking at now is the shifting over to the Roman side. Now, here's why. It's because the chief priests and the elders, they wanted Jesus dead without question. And because they wanted him dead, uh, the, the chief priests and elders together, the group that they made up is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin gathered together, as we talked about, um, to give an appearance of a more 
formal pronouncement of death. You can see that in uh, verse one, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel. So they're, they're talking together. They took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now what had happened, if you look up in chapter 26 in verse 66, after that he had said that he, he was God and they said that this was blasphemous, they said um, in verse 66, what is your judgment? And they said he deserves death. So they had pronounced death on Jesus already, but it was a sham. It was just a, 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 a way to try to pronounce it and they knew that it was a sham. So they're, coming, they're reconvening together here in verse one, trying to give some kind of appearance of a formal pronouncement of Jesus's death to make the, the previous night, which we know is just a big um, disturbance, a big problem, uh, look a little bit more formal. Now, in this particular period, as I said, in the first century, the Romans were the ones that were in power, and they're the ones that exercised the uh, death sentence. They're the ones that, in order to maintain, maintain control, they didn't let people like the Jewish people kind of have their own capital punishments. They were the one that handed out and did the capital punishment because the Romans were quite control freaks. Um, if you think your spouse is a control freak, he's, he's, he or she is nothing compared to the Romans. They controlled everything. Um, and so they wanted to make sure if anybody's going to be put to death, even under your Jewish trials or what have you, you have to come make your case to us. And if we approve, then we will say yes and we actually carry out the act for you. They had become quite good at it. The Romans were expert at, experts at putting people to death and the cross was their um, preferred means by doing this. And so the Sanhedrin had to come and make their case now. They say it's blasphemy, but now they have to come to the Roman court and say, we're, we're gonna make our case for this guy deserving capital punishment. Now, remember, he's innocent. He's Jesus, He's perfect. And so the way that they're going to try to make their case then is they're going to try to stress and highlight the royal side of his Messiahship. Jesus is the Messiah coming from the Old Testament, but he's also, as we've talked about, the king of kings. And he says he's the king of the Jews. And so they're going to try to stress the royal side. He's the king, Pilate. Doesn't that bother you? He's saying he's the king of the whole thing. And of course, uh, they're hoping that Pilate would say, well, that's treason, so I'm going to put him to death. And so they come, and they're going to put him before Pilate. So what we're going to look at today is just in verse 1 and 2, as they're presenting him to Pilate, 1 and 2, and then after that, you can see 3 through 10, they kind of, uh, Matthew just jumps over here and gives this last little thing about Judas. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. And as we're looking at the verses 1 through 2 with the chief priests and elders, and Judas, there's some things that we're, we're going to want us to notice. I'm going to want us to notice, and I think that Matthew wants us to notice, which is these pe- people, in verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and elders, or the Sanhedrin, and Judas, and the Sanhedrin that he's dealing with, they're all quite religious, legalistic to the core. They're not Christ followers whatsoever. And so as we're seeing this, we're going to see that there's dangers in being religious, air quotes, scare quotes, or whatever you call them. There's dangers in being religious. There's dangers in it. So what do I mean when I say religious? So let me make sure, because sometimes that term can be misunderstood. What I mean when I quote it, I don't mean a genuine follower of Jesus when I say religious. I don't mean someone that's pursuing Christ with all their heart. That's not what I mean by religious. Instead, I mean that this is someone that follows God, but the way that they follow God is they love rules and follow rules, and they think that because I follow rules and because I keep all of God's laws, I think that because my outward expression of keeping rules is so good that God's just like, oh, you're such a good rule keeper. Mm, I just love you so much. That in their mind, they think, the, the religious say, God loves the way I keep rules. I mean, 
if anybody can keep rules, it's me. I am, I'm the best at keeping rules. And so because of that, I keep the law so well, I follow the law, God just loves me. God loves me. And here's the danger. Religious, religious people think that they love God because God loves them because they keep rules, which is just not the way it's supposed to be. God doesn't love us because we keep rules. He loves us because he loves us, and he gave us his son, and therefore, since his son died for us, we worship him with our lifestyle in response to the fact that he didn't have to give his son, and we can't get over the fact that he gave his son, and we love him because of that. We don't love him because, hey, God, look how I keep rules. But what's going on here, and we're going to have a lot of cautions here um, in these particular verses um, of people that are religious. Now, before we get started, uh, I want to help us all see that this sermon's for every single person here. Because we have, I think, and I hope, and I pray, that we have such a bend towards trying to keep all of our sermons gospel-centered, all the church gospel-centered, all our community groups gospel-centered. We've only five years, but we try to keep our minds focused in the gospel, trusting in Christ's work on the cross. Everything's about Jesus. It's all in believing what he's done, and my only right standing before God is based on what he's done, not on laws and rule-keeping. I, I, because we try to do that as a church, preach that as much as we can, it's not on what you're doing that's making you right. It's on what Christ has done, and you bank on what Christ has done, not what you're doing. We do that over and over. That I think most of us can say, well, I've got this sermon down, Fud. I'm just going to either roll back. I'm going to check my phone. March Madness, man, I can check out the games. When the games start? I don't need to worry about being religious and following rules, so this sermon doesn't apply to me. And in a lot of ways, maybe in some ways that's true. I think that, and I pray that, the Lord has been gracious to us to where we do have a good understanding of the gospel and we're not relying on rules. Now, some of you might be over here where you, you only rely on rules. You think that because you keep the law that you follow what God says that he's somehow overly, you know, in love with you because of that and not because of Jesus. But back to over here where I think most of us might stay. We trust in Christ. We believe in the gospel. We don't, we, we can't stand legalism, right? But the truth is that we all have little places in our heart where we're still little legalists. We don't think about it. Maybe we don't admit it. Maybe we are aware of it, but maybe it's just a little bit aware of it. So I'm hoping that as we're looking at this today, you wouldn't just automatically dismiss all the things you're going to hear and say, well, I'm not a rule follower. If there's anything, I'm not a rule follower. I'm just gospel. Everything's gospel. I want you to say, anyway, if that's the case, still listen. Because these dangers of religiosity, these dangers of religion, are going to be things that I think that will open up your mind and open up your heart and help you see that you still have Little pieces of your heart where you're a rule follower. You love rules sometimes to the detriment or to the declination of or to the lack of worship in Jesus. So let's look at this today. We want to see some dangers of religion. Right here in verse 1, it said, The morning came, all the chief priests. Now, if if you've been tracking with us um, up until now, when it says, when morning came, that just begs the question for me in verse 1. Okay, we have this false Jewish sham trial the night before, and it says morning. Is there some kind of night that passed? Is there some kind of level of sleep? I thought the whole thing was all night. Jesus didn't get any sleep. Likely, we don't know for sure, because it doesn't say really in all the texts, but likely that false Jewish trial ended somewhere at 3 a.m., morning first light at 6 a.m. So you've got about a three-hour window in there where Jesus is somewhere, held somewhere, probably didn't sleep. We have no idea. And I'm saying this because I think it's important as we go to the cross just to realize just how physically exhausted Jesus is as he takes on the sins of the world. 
in the full wrath of the Father. So he's, he's, morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel to try to formulate some kind of real pronouncement of death to put him to death. And then they bound Jesus and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate the governor, to lead him to be uh, to give in to Pilate. Now, the interesting thing in, in a parallel text in one of the gospels in John 18, um, this is just going to begin to highlight religion and these people's mindsets uh, where they are. In a, in a parallel text in John 18, 28, we're going to read the same thing. Listen to this. It says, they led him from the house of Caiaphas, that's the Jewish trial the night before, to the governor's headquarters, that's Pilate, and it was early morning. Listen to this right here. They, this is just bizarre. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. All right, we're up to the, the headquarters here. Jesus, you have to go the, the rest of the place. There's a line in the sand which we're not willing to go. Listen to why. Listen to this. So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. I mean, are you hearing the irony here? Walking into this building is going to defile us. Killing an innocent man, oh, that's, that's okay. No big deal for us to, to have a sham of a trial the night before and kill the Son of God. That doesn't cause defilement. Walking over into this building, oh, we're defiled, we can't even eat the Passover. So we can automatically see how ridiculous these people are, right? The, the idea that they can kill someone and not be defiled, which we're going to see in just a minute, they know is innocent, but walking into a building is what defiles them. We already see that we're dealing with people that are High on the intellectual scale. That's, a, that's definitely a lot of sarcasm. They're not at all. Um, so here we see <clears throat> that they walk over to this particular building and they, they want to give him to Pilate, the governor, and they don't want to walk in. As uh, Spurgeon says here, he's making a Christ connection of Jesus being bound from the Old Testament. He says, as Isaac was bound and laid on the altar, so was our great antitype Jesus bound before he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and delivered up to the Roman governor, as it says in Isaiah 53, 7, led like a lamb to the slaughter. And they bring him to Pilate, the governor. Who's Pilate? Pilate, this is Pontius Pilate. He is the governor. He is the appointed prefect by Tiberius Caesar over a certain region to carry out the law. Um, And and Pilate was not not a nice guy. He was a ruthless man. They held, these prefects held the power of life and death, and they carried it out whenever it was time to kill people. D.A. Carson says that extra-biblical sources, this is things that people wrote back in the first century that's not from the Bible, but just other authors, um, portray Pilate as a cruel, imperious, and sensitive ruler who hated his Jewish subjects and took few pains to understand them. So he, he didn't understand Judaism. He doesn't really understand everything they're bringing him. He doesn't really want to hear it. He's not really interested. And so he, he just it doesn't care much. And he's very uh, ruthless. He kills people as much as he possibly can because he's just such a, you know, not nice fella. So uh, he didn't really like him, but he knows that in order for capital punishment to, ha- to happen, the Sanhedrin trial would have to happen. They'd have to come make it the case before him. He would have to say okay, and then he would carry it out. And so we see the Sanhedrin pride as they walk into this particular building, kind of stop and like, okay, we want to kill this innocent man. We had a, a, a false trial last night, but we don't want to be defiled by walking through this certain line and going over here. So we see this level of unawareness, self-unawareness, that's just quite baffling as they don't want to walk into a house. Now, verse 3 is when we walk into Judas here. Um, and it says, Judas was the betrayer. Now, 
if you weren't here over the last couple weeks, I'll, I'll remind us all of how Judas betrayed. Just one page over in chapter 26, verse 14, it says, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and they, he basically went, when he went to the Sanhedrin, he said, I'll give him over to you. Just tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. He was interested in money. 30 pieces of silver, which is not much back then. Not much at all. And he said, okay. And then just a few verses later, in verse 25, it says, Judas, who would betray him, uh, when Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me, he says, is it me? And he says, you know it's you. Basically, you have said so. And then Judas left, and he got the Sanhedrin and brought, brought him to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, probably went to the upper room first, and he wasn't there. Went to the garden, and then he betrayed him with a kiss. Betrayed him with a kiss. So here we have Judas, the betrayer, that comes up to him and is ready to betray him. Matthew is the only one that records in the, gosp- in, in the Gospels, of all the Gospel writers, um, in the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's the only one to record Judas's death. Now, Luke does record it in Acts 1, but as far as the Gospels, it's not in any of the places. And so why? Why, why is that? Um, first reason, I think, is that this isn't on the screen. We had not gotten to my real number one yet. This is like a long one. This is like an hour and a half one, so y'all might want to go get some coffee or something. Um, I'm just kidding. It's not an hour and a half. It's only hour 10. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, no, it wasn't even that, I don't think, maybe. So Judas, the betrayer. Um, so here's what's going on. Why is it that Matthew wants to write about Judas? Why is it that he wants to? Well, we know, and we've said it over and over, Matthew is writing to people who are Jewish, and as he's writing to people who are Jewish, he's trying to help them see all those things in the Old Testament that talk about a coming Messiah. Jesus is the guy that's fulfilling all those prophecies. And so we know in, in the Old Testament, there's prophecies, that, positive prophecies that are given that Jesus fulfills. But also in the Old Testament, there's negative prophecies that Judas is going to fulfill. Negative because it's, you don't want to be that guy fulfilling the negative prophecy. That means you're going against God. And we're going to see, as it says in verse 9 and 10, that Judas fulfilled a prophecy from Jeremiah. So he's mentioning Judas here in this book of Matthew to help us see that um, all along, Matthew's wanting all along for all the Jews to see prophecy is being fulfilled over and over. This is why I'm mentioning Judas right here, because Judas is going to fulfill negative prophecy from the Old Testament. But I think there's a second reason. Now, the second reason is pure speculation. I didn't read this anywhere this week. This is just FUD thinking, and I think that maybe it's right. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. He handled money. Judas was the one that handled the money in the tw- for the 12 disciples. And so Matthew is, I think, wanting to write about Judas's demise because in some ways he can kind of relate to Judas. As he, this is what happened to Judas for this love of money. And he's thinking to himself, that's what I had. And so my side note for that, I think, the helpful thing I think is, it's helpful for us to know ourselves. Whether we're the loud mouth like Peter or the encourager like Barnabas or the thinker like Paul or whoever. Because as we see, or <laughs> the wretched sinner, but really comes and knows how to repent like David, like we need to know who we are. And I think it's helpful for us, as we know who we are, to see ourselves in some of these characters and see how they repent and see how they think and see how they come to God and th- work through their faith. So I, I think that's what Matthew's doing, is he's just writing this down just as a reminder. Handling money is, a, is certainly a, a great job, but don't ever be the lover of money. And so I, that's why I think he's writing it in here. And it says, Judas the betrayer. Now, what has happened here? Then Judas's betrayer, look at this, saw that Jesus was condemned and he changed his mind. What's going on there? What's happening? Reality hits is what happens. 
all of a sudden, and this happens for all of us, reality hits. This is how I've, how I've kind of explained it. Because when we first look upon sin and temptation comes and the devil makes it look so sunrisey and awesome and, and happy kittens or whatever, and we're like, oh, that sin looks so good. I want to dive into it. And it's once we get into it and the reality hits, it's awful. Let me get, here's the illustration. I think I've used it here. I don't know. But if you've ever traveled south in North Carolina on I-95 or north in South Carolina on I-95, you think you must be coming on literally the best attraction in the world. Who would spend this much money to every like three seconds put these massive billboards like south of the border, south of the border, it's the best place in the world. And you're like, what is this place? It must be the greatest place in America. They have catchy little lines like, you never saw such a place and big pieces of sausage, sausage. It must be like the most amazing place in the world to go and like, oh, this place is awesome. And you finally get there like sign after sign. You're like, yes, it looks awesome. It's gonna be great. Just like sin, temptation. Oh, it looks wonderful. And then you finally get up there to south of the border and you, I finally had to stop because like, it's gonna be great. And I get there, it's like this tiny tent shack and some guy named Joe's like, here's a soda. You're like, like, this, what is this place? This isn't what, this is not at all what you build it out to be. I thought it was gonna be this awesome attraction. This is all a hole in the ground. What a sham this was. You, you sold a whole bunch of stuff, but when I get here, like, this is awful. This is exactly how sin entices us. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And when you finally get in, you realize just how awful it is. Reality sets in, not some false reality, but real reality. And all of a sudden, most of us feel what he's feeling. A change of mind happens. Remorse, repentance, there's levels here, which we're going to talk about. Reality hits Judas. He thinks everything's going to be great. I'm going to be rich. People are going to think I'm awesome. Or I'm forcing Jesus' hand, and finally as they arrest him, he's just going to beat down everybody, call down the angels, and set up the kingdom, and I get to be the money handler for the new kingdom. All kinds of gold. I'm just going to bathe in gold. That's Judas, the gold. Like he, he's forcing, and that's not what happens. Jesus is condemned. Jesus is sent off to Pilate, and all of a sudden, he's real, Jesus is realizing this sin that I thought was going to work out for my favor, it's not, it's not looking so good. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to be careful because the language we're going to hear here sounds like repentance. Notice some of these things. He comes, he changes his mind. He brings back 30 pieces of silver. Here's the money back. I don't want it. These are all things that people are, that are repenting would do. He actually says, I have sinned. He actually says, Jesus is innocent. Like in verses 3 and 4, he does amazing things here. Seeming like, this has got to be repentance. Right? But I want you to notice something here. And it, We're not all Greek readers. So let me point it out to you. Verse 3. When Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, it says, he changed his mind. This change of mind, if you've been in Bible world any, any, any time, a lot of times they say, that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's the 180. And the Greek word is metanoia. It's repentance. It's like I'm walking down this road. I turn around. I walk down this road. My mind changes and all of a sudden I'm going this way. But Matthew doesn't use that word here. Matthew does use metanoia in other places. Matthew 3, 2, when John the Baptist goes out, JTB, stomping grounds, eating his buzzards and whatever, he's, or locusts, and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, when Jesus starts the public ministry, he's telling everybody, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Metanoia, change your mind, have a turn, have a, have a real repentance happen. 
But that's not what's happened here. This change your mind is not metanoia. Instead, it's metamelane. That's a different word. This is, sounds like a Chinese dish. I want some metamelane for lunch. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a repentance. Calvin, as he's talking about metanoia, he says repentance is true conversion of the soul to God. That's what metanoia is. True conversion of my soul unto God. I repent. Judas has metamelane remorse. Sorry I got busted. I hate that I got caught. And so he's going to do outward actions that real repentance would look like. I have sinned. I'm changing my mind. I'm bringing back the money. Jesus was innocent. But all these things are just talk. They're just talk. Repentance is not just talking big and having some kind of display of outward actions. Repentance is heart change. And with your outward actions and talk, you're not fooling anybody. You might be fooling some people, but you're not fooling yourself and you're not fooling God. That's repentance. So what we want to see here is this. Let's keep going and then I'll show you. Um, So Judas comes and he says he changes his mind. He brings back the 30 pieces of silver. He says it to the chief priests and elders and he looks at him and verse one he says, I have sinned. Where it says I, um, first person singular, really we can just, we can think of that as first person plural. I, we, because you did it, you gave me the money. We have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He actually calls Jesus innocent there in front of the Sanhedrin. And they say this, was that to us? You made the mess. Wait a second. No. You made the mess, Sanhedrin, with him. They say, what is that to us? They literally actually look at him and say, what does it have to do with me? Where's your concern for justice, Sanhedrin? That's what I'm thinking. They say, what does that mean to me? It should mean everything to you, Sanhedrin. That's your job. The Sanhedrin exists to adjudicate things and decide innocence and guilt. That's why you exist. What do you mean, what is it to you? That's the whole point of your existence. It should mean something to you. You got it wrong. What are you talking about? What is that to us? And then notice this. What is that to us? See to it to yourself. And then it says, and throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed. He went and hanged himself. The chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for us to keep this treasury since it's blood money. Oh, wait a second, you just admitted it. (laughs) Did you just admit this is blood money? You just admitted that what you did was killing someone. What do you mean, what is it to you? He said it's innocent, and then you just declared, saying it's blood money, that he really is innocent. So it is a big deal. What do you mean, what is that to us? Here we're seeing that they are, their only concern is for Jesus to be killed and to keep... preserving their power. They want their, their rank. They, this is the height of pride, the height of self-preservation, the height of hypocrisy. This is a danger of being religious. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at some dangers of being religious. And as we look at these things, I'm going to give a contrast on how it looks for those who follow Christ. The first danger of religion is this. Religious people, the, the religious, they self-preserve and do not rescue others, especially the innocent. They don't rescue the innocent. They stomp on them like they're trash. Religious self-preserve and do not rescue others like the innocent. In contrast to this, these contrasts won't be on here. You can just guess the contrasts are so obvious. Jesus saves us. He lays down his life 
for us. He rescues us. As it says in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. As it says in Romans 5, 8, that Jesus came and died and, and, bought, and purchased us his own enemies. So Jesus rescues and does not self-preserve those who are needing to be rescued. Religious people self-preserve and do not rescue. You, you've probably seen this in your own experience. The ones that just want to hold on to their own power, they'll just stomp on people to get to where they want. And that's what's going on here. Another thing, let's look at this. Verses three through five, it says he changes his mind and brings back all this stuff. And then in verse five, he throws it down the, piece, the pieces of silver into the temple. A mere act of desperation. I don't think this is an act of repentance. It's just, I don't want it because I feel bad because I got busted. And if I don't have the money, then maybe no one will catch me. And he departed, and then he went and hanged himself. Spurgeon, as he says that he, when he says he hangs himself, he says that Judas hanging himself reveals his character and his lack of repentance. I think he's right. I think he's right. Judas is revealing his true character and saying, I'm not going to be repentant here. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. As Mark says, Peter broke down and wept because of what he, he did. Judas, no weeping. Just goes out and kills himself. So the second thing when we're talking about the religious, looking at Judas is the religious, they show remorse, but not repentance. The religious, they show worldly grief, not godly grief. The religious are sorry they got busted, not repentant. We can see that right there in verses 3 through 5. Or in 2 Corinthians, as Paul talks about worldly grief and godly grief, this is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. If Judas was grieving, he had worldly grief, not godly grief, because his grief did not lead to salvation, which we can see eventually in Acts 125. But it says, Godly grief, that's repentance. That's not sorry you got busted. That's true, heartfelt, as Calvin says, the soul is longing to, be, to cling to God. Calvin said it by saying, a true conversion of the soul to God. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Sorry you got busted does not lead to life. It just leads to death. So the religious show remorse, not repentance. Christians repent. Christians have godly grief. So the, the contrast is to say it this way. Christ followers are active repenters. And this isn't just a one-time thing when you get saved. I repent of my sin for here on out, all the ones I've done, all the ones I ever did. This is my one act of contrition, my one act of repentance. Come into me, save me, done. Never have to repent again. That's, that's not it. Christians are active. Christians are the chief repenters. Are, are you the, if you're a believer, are you the chief repenter in your home? Are you the chief repenter? First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we, we believe that with all of our heart for, for people that aren't Christians. If you confess your sin, God's faithful and just, he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you from all, and yes, that's true for unbelievers, but First John is written to believers, it says it in 1 John 5.10. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the book is written to believers. 
So that means 1 John 1, 9 is primarily a truth for believers. Believers are the ones that, the chief confessors, that I'm supposed to be confessing my sin. And as I confess my sin, God, faithful and just, to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from my unrighteousness, which he's already done, and leading me in the process of sanctification. We are supposed to be ongoing repenters forever. Luther, as he wrote the 95 Theses 500 years ago, when we, you know, not we, I wasn't there, obviously none of us were, but whenever the church protested against the Catholic Church, number one on the 95 Theses, Luther wrote, when our Lord and Master Christ Jesus said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Our entire lives. So it's not just a one-time deal. I'm good, God. You heard me say it once. If I change my mind, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. No, no. Calvin says it this way. True repentance is displeasure at sin, arising out of a reverence for God and producing at the same time, here it is, a love and desire of righteousness. That's the difference between Judas and his outward talk and his outward actions, throwing up his pieces of silver. It, he's just all outward actions. Real repentance, heart repentance, as Calvin says, is a love and a desire of righteousness. Are you remorseful and just do a bunch of stuff on the outside because you're not feeling God? Or are you repentant? Do you have a love? Do you have a deep desire in your own life every day for righteousness, for Christ-like living, for holiness, a disdain, a vehement disdain for sin? That's what real repentance is. A love and desire of righteousness. So I think it would be good right now to look at this parallel text in Acts 1 where Luke talks about Judas um, just to make some connections for us and how he's going to fulfill this. He says this in Acts 1, uh, Judas became the guide for those that arrested Jesus. In verse 17, he was numbered. In this particular text right here in Acts 1, um, Judas has died, and they're left with 11, and they're trying to pick the other one. Who's going to be the 12th disciple? And so they're talking about who's going to be the 12th, and as they're talking about who's going to be the 12th, they're, they're kind of talking about Judas for a second before they pick their 12th. And this is what they say. Um, Ju- he, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Judas was a part of us. He got to be, do some stuff. He held the money. Now this man talking about Judas, bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. No, he didn't. It says in verse 7 in Matthew 27 that the Sanhedrin bought the field. Well, okay. Luke wrote this several 30 years after this. And so Judas's money bought the field. So it says this man bought the field. It's just saying the money that Judas had at one time bought the field. No big deal. Um, He bought the field and the reward of his wickedness and then falling headlong. The falling headlong means he swole up. He got all swole. It says then falling headlong. This is as he's hanging himself, this is just awesome, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. I want to say it just because it's fun to say it twice, right? His stomach got so swollen that it just burst out and guts and bowels everywhere all over everything. Pretty nasty. Um, and it says, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. And then here's the prophecies being fulfilled in Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, 8. So we see... Um, In Acts 1, there's a parallel text just talking about this, and it's not producing godly grief. Instead, it's just worldly grief where he goes off and hangs himself. And this is not, obviously, this isn't the future for every non-repenter. This is Judas. Um, We all aren't going to have our bowels explode if we don't um, repent. But this is what happened with Judas. He had a hard heart and was not a chief repenter. Now, 
going to verse 6, back over in 27, it says this. Now the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury, <laughs> this is ridiculous, since it's blood money. Okay, there's just so much ridiculous here, right? So first of all, what they're trying to do is adhere to Deuteronomy 23.18. There's a law in Deuteronomy uh, where it says, if a prostitute or a male prostitute makes money and then they want to give some of it back to the temple, then you can't keep that because it's dirty money, which we make sense. And so they're, they're upholding that principle, which is we don't take this kind of dirty money. And so you know, this money right here was used to kill someone, and so don't bring it back to us. But the irony of all ironies is they didn't want the money that they gave to kill somebody to come back to them because that money's dirty, but they're the ones that gave it. I mean, the irony here is ridiculous. Like, don't give me that. It's blood money. Get that stuff away that I gave you to kill someone that we don't want back. Do we see the ridiculous nature of just how hard-hearted they are? The absurdity by which these people think, the hypocrisy that they have is amazing. So there's three things that are just out of the world ridiculous here. Number one, it's their money that they don't want back. Don't give me the money that I gave you to kill someone that I can't hold or else I'll be dirty and defiled if I hold that money because killing someone didn't defile you, right? Um, Second one is, (laughs) if they actively seek to kill someone, that doesn't stain them. But taking the money does. Ridiculous. And the third one, which is, it says there, it's not lawful for them to put the treasury since it's blood money. They literally admit that they're guilty and that Jesus was innocent in that moment and yet feel no remorse. They don't even feel remorse like Judas. They're just like, get it out of here. We gotta do something. What are we gonna do? So the third thing here is this, that the religious, they love the law and they're blind to their sin and hypocrisy. This is just over the top blindness to hypocrisy, I think. Like, you just want to take them and shake them. Are you kidding me? You gave me the money. What are you talking about? But they're just, they're over the top. Religious are over the top blind to their sin and hypocrisy. In contrast, Christ's followers, they love the law, but they don't love the law above the law giver. We love the law. Read Psalm 119. Everybody should go memorize Psalm 119 this week. You should mark that down as something you want to do this week. It's 150 verses, so that's kind of crazy. But we love the law. That's what the whole Psalm 119 is about. Yes, we love the law. But we don't want to be Pharisees and only love the law above the lawgiver. The point of the law is not to keep it. Have you, have you experienced uh, people that love law and, and, and want to obey rules versus people that aren't so good at obeying rules? Have you experienced this interchange between people? It's quite amusing. So even in my own marriage, um, Christie's mindset is laws are meant to be kept. My mindset is laws are meant to be broken. That's just, they're here, but they're meant to be broken. They're flexible. That's what they're here for. They're, they're suggestions. <laughs> and f- when you're not brought up that way, um, suggestions just blows her top. Like, they're not suggestions. I've seen this even in my, my oldest, too. Uh, my oldest is a law keeper. My youngest one is like me. She knows, understands that laws are, you know, flexible. And so, <laughs> and so when they, they interchange with each other, the law keeper's like, you can't do that. You got to keep it down, like, to the top. Like, so it's, it's funny, right? Watching, watching those that really love the law lose their top because they don't understand. No, I'm just kidding. But the point is here is that 
what's happening here, and I'm not saying it's happening in my oldest or in my wife, but what's happening here in people like that is that they elevate law and they say, my God is law, rules. That's my God. Somebody created those things, but you take a back seat to your rules. But that's not what Christians do. Christians love the law. Of course we love the law. But we always love the law giver above that. Always. And here, they are so blind to their hypocrisy that they're missing out. And this is a pretty big one. It's in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. We got to not take the money. (laughs) It's so important that we don't hold this 30 pieces of silver that we'll just neglect the fact that we're murdering someone. Blind. Sin causes them to be hypocrites. It's their blood money that's causing it. So now they're in a bit of a quandary because Judas takes the silver, throws it in, goes and hangs himself, and there it all is, the 30 pieces of silver just laying around and like, we can't keep this in the treasury. It's defiled, I'm defiled, so what are we going to do? Huddle up. So they call the Sanhedrin huddle. They get there. All right, who's the quarterback? In comes Elway or whoever. What are we going to do? And he's like, I got a great idea. Got it solved. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this 30 pieces of silver and we're going to buy a field. What's been going on? The potters, they go out to this little field out here. They, they, they collect their clay, and it's starting to run dry. No more pottery's really being made out of there. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy that field, and we're going to do it as a public service. We're going to be awesome. Everybody's going to think we're incredible. We're going to buy that. And so when strangers come to Jerusalem, or when Gentiles come to Jerusalem, we don't want our place to being defiled with strangers and Gentiles being buried with us. So way out there in the old field, in old uh, potter's place, we're going to have that to be their burial ground. New burial ground for strangers and Gentiles. Our place is preserved. Everybody's going to think we're awesome. Sanhedrin's is getting to slap high fives everywhere. Everybody thinks we're great. That's the plan. Ready? Break. Go. So that's the break. That's the, that's the plan that they have. Now, there's a problem. There's a big problem. Um, let's just go ahead and put it out there, what the problem is. Religious do good works for the benefits of themselves. Now, this would be a good thing, right? If someone was actually doing this as a true Christ follower in this first century, providing this service of the burial place for strangers in the outside of the city, this would be considered a good thing. Well, what a nice thing. They did that. That's awesome. But we know, Matthew's kind of given us the backstory, which is they don't know what to do with this money. They don't want to keep it because that would defile them. And so they want to go buy this field and make everybody think we're awesome now. So it's like a... Like, Jesus is dead. We don't have to keep the money. The treasury's not going to be, that, that's not going to be defiled. Buy the field. Everybody thinks we're awesome. All of it's golden for us. Oh, we're going to look awesome. Sanhedrin is like getting a couple points here. They think everything's awesome. Here's the deal. Religion, religious only do good works that benefit themselves. In contrast, Christ followers do good works as worship unto God, regardless of self-benefit. Let's talk about what's going to happen here. This is where it gets awesome. They're doing this. They're wanting to meet an actual public need for strangers and Gentiles to be buried whenever they come to the city and just die. I guess this happened all the time. Um, And so they're wanting to do this. And in a turn of irony, this is how Calvin says it, in a turn of irony that only God can produce, Calvin gets so giddy about this that it backfires on on the Sanhedrin. He calls it wonderful providence that it backfires. The opposite of what they desire happens. They want to be the awesome people for everybody to think they're awesome for providing this public need. Instead, 
Instead of providing the public need, the exact opposite, opposite happens. In this particular field, in legend status becomes a perpetual memorial of the treason that happens. And in the legend, the way this field is talked about, the chief priests and elders aren't held in high esteem saying, oh, it's awesome. Instead, no one calls that the great burial grounds of the wonderful Sanhedrin out there at the potter's field that they provide for the public need. No, no, no. For now on, it's called Al-Kadama, field of blood, a place of treason. What they tried to do as a good work backfired and didn't come out in the irony of all ironies. And that doesn't always happen. But what they're trying to do when it comes to good works is really only to, try, only to try to benefit themselves. The only reason they did that was to save their backs. The awesome thing is it just backfired. In contrast, Christ followers do good works as worship unto God. We don't do, it for our, we don't do good works for self-benefit. We don't do good works because God says, do good works. I said it in Ephesians 2.10. Okay, taskmaster, let me go do your tasks because that's what you want. No, no. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, we say, because you saved me and I was on a pathway towards hell. I can't get over that. And so anything you ask me to do is not some task you demand. Instead, because you saved me, because I love you so much, I want to worship you with my entire life in the congregation as I sing and as I walk out with good works. It's my joy to do these good works. Of course I want to do these things. Whether it's my own self-benefit or not, it doesn't matter to me. All the good works I do for you are because I love you because I worship you, whether it's, it's not going to, I'm not going to do it because it's benefiting me in some way, and, and it might benefit you, but it might not. We do it not because we think we're going to get some reward, but instead, the reward has already been given to us in Christ, and now, as a response, all of it is that we do as good works is worship. The big difference between religious good works and Christianity when it comes to good works. And the awesome thing is here is that it backfires right in their face. That's what they get. So they took counsel, and then it says here in verse 8, therefore that field has been called field of blood to this day, Al-Kadama, good for them. And now in verse 9 and 10, we have this little uh, shift, and <clears throat> it's a little bit confusing. I don't want to wade too deep in the mud. I'm going to try to explain it so we all understand it, but not get into a whole lot of stuff. But as I said a minute ago, or maybe it was an hour ago, whatever, uh, Judas is kind of fulfilling the negative Old Testament prophecies. The people that are going to betray Jesus. Judas fulfills one of those. We talked about how that was in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Well, Matthew here is going to point to how it was also fulfilled in a, a prophecy of Jeremiah. So this is what it says in verse 9 and 10. When this field of blood happened and all these things happened, uh, the, the, the field was purchased for 30 pieces of silver. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, that's the Sanhedrin, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now here's the problem. This is just not a big deal, but here's the problem. When it says the prophet Jeremiah, if you have your little uh, citation middle column, if you see that, in verse 9, where it says the prophet Jeremiah is saying, and right before the word and, there's a little K. And if you go to the K right there in verse 9, it says, cited from Zechariah 11.13. You're like, wait a second. If I know English a little bit, Jeremiah spelled J-E-R, whatever. Zechariah spelled Z-E something. And so that's not the same person, Matthew. And surely, if you're writing it to Israel, Jewish people, you wouldn't just haphazardly 
mentioned the wrong person, <laughs> they would recognize that. You're like, Jeremiah? What are you talking about Jeremiah? And let's read Zechariah 11:13 so that we can baffle ourselves just a little bit more before, um, you know, it's explained. And it's not because I have, I'm, I'm so smart. Commentators are smart. Verse 13 says this. This is, n- listen to the language of Zechariah 11:13 and how much it sounds like everything we've been saying. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. We read that and it's like, okay, that really sounds like what we're talking about. So Matthew, you meant to say, then was fulfilled by the prophet Zechariah. Why did you say Jeremiah? Don't you know what's going on here? Matthew, you're writing to Jews. You might want to get that right. Um, So here's what's going on. There's three things we need to understand. First, why does he ascribe it to Jeremiah? Who's he quoting? Is he quoting Jeremiah? Is he quoting Zechariah? Which one is it? The second thing is, once we know that, what are you saying? What's the meaning? Like, what are you actually trying to point me to once I get the ascription right? And then after that, how's it literally being fulfilled? Because you say, um, then was fulfilled, which seems to be the main point of verses 9 and 10. What's the fulfillment? All right, here we go. I don't want to wade too deep in this. I just want to try to give us a good cursory understanding because there's a point that's coming. The ascription to Jeremiah. Who's he quoting? Jeremiah or Zechariah? Well, I read Zechariah to you. Don't turn, but just listen. Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, says this. Notice there's also some similarities of vocabulary. Now, I know whoever put this, you know, Mr. Central Guy that wrote this in the middle part, or maybe it's on your bottom, we're thinking, well, he wrote it there. Zechariah, it's got to be right. He didn't write that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew wrote Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if we're going to pick one between Citation Man and Matthew. We're going to pick Matthew. <laughs> Matthew wrote Jeremiah for a reason. He didn't just accidentally write Jeremiah and meant to say Zechariah. He meant Jeremiah. So why? Here's Jeremiah 19, 1 through 13. Listen to this. These are just some of the language. I'm not going to read it all. But it says, potters, earthenware, the elders of the people, and some of the elders of the priests. It talks about bloods of innocence. It mentions this place called Topheth, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, which is actually geographically, later on, the exact same field, Al-Kadama. It's the exact same field. And as it's talking about that particular field, uh, later on in Jeremiah 19, it says, Men shall be buried in Topheth because there was no other place for them to be buried. Okay, well, that does sound like this. So which one is it? And why does Zechariah sound the same? Well, the ascription, he does mention Jeremiah. But the way to understand this is whenever things are cited in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is a major prophet, means he's got a whole lot of chapters. Zechariah is a minor prophet, he's got a little. And it's, it's customary as they cite that they would just mention one which would be the major and not the minor, but that doesn't mean it doesn't count as the minor. It's just generally as they put ascriptions to people, they, it would be both. So who is it? It's both. It's both of them. It's Zechariah eleven thirteen and Jeremiah 19, 1 through 13. So the ascription, we got that. But what about the meaning? What about the meaning? Well, we understand the meaning from Jeremiah. It's pretty straightforward. A field was bought. People are going to be buried there. Innocent blood was, was shed, and it shouldn't have been. But Zechariah, here's what's going on in Zechariah. In chapter 11 of Zechariah, God commands Zechariah to go and shepherd his people. And it says that they are, quote, in verses 4 and 7, a flock that's doomed for slaughter. And so God says, I care about these people. I want you to go shepherd this flock that's doomed for slaughter. And so as he goes and does that, um, he sees the current leadership that's leading these people. And of course, they're not doing a very good job. 
since the flock is doomed for slaughter. <laughs> They're apparently not doing a good job. So he goes to them and he Donald Trumps them. You're fired. Get out of here. So he, he fires the current leadership of the false shepherds and then he becomes the shepherd. He was going to be the one that's in charge. So after he fires the leadership and he's interacting with the people, he realizes that the people themselves are just hideously corrupt themselves. He's like, well, this is great. You people are terrible. Principle, corrupt leadership produces corrupt people. It's just really obvious there. Um, Bad leadership generally corrupts the people they lead. Not always, but generally. And so um, what he says is, well, I fired them. I don't really like these people either. So I'm going to tap out and say I'm done. Uh, I'm getting out of here and good luck with all of you. So he goes to God and says, I want it all done. And so he resigns the contract. And so in order for this contract to be broken for him to lead, there's a a fee. Uh, You know, you broke your... Verizon contract or whatever I'm going to but anyway that's another story um that they (laughs) he breaks the contract well the price of this breaking 30 pieces of silver 30 pieces of silver to break this contract and so they give it to Zechariah and he's like forget all y'all I'm leaving and then God says don't take that money take your 30 pieces of silver and throw it I like to say at it says to but I think it's funny if it's at like throw it at the people but it's throw it into them where they are and so that's what's going on so the what the, the meaning behind all this is this. At the core of Zechariah and Matthew, the parallel is pretty stunning. But Zechariah and Matthew, as we're looking at Judas, the Lord's shepherd, Zechariah and Jesus, are rejected by the people of Israel, and the value of them is the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And in both instances, money is flung into the temple, and it ends up purchasing something that pollutes and points the people to destruction. That's D.A. Carson. He also says both Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah 19 are both showing patterns of apostasy, just like Judas here in verse 19. That's why Matthew ascribes Jeremiah, that there's patterns of apostasy and rejection of the shepherd by God's people, whether it be Zechariah or Jesus. And they're finding their ultimate fulfillment in the rejection of Jesus, who is cheaply valued by the Jews. He was, he was just cheaply valued. So as we see all that, the fulfillment that's happening, the New Testament commentary helps us understand what's, what's, what's the big point here. They says the main point, so I like that. When you tell me the main point, that helps me understand what I'm looking for. The main point is this, to bear in mind, however, is that also in the suicide of the traitor, which is Judas, and the purchase of the field with his blood money, prophecy is being fulfilled. That's the main point. Judas is fulfilling prophecy, the negative prophecy. So if we're asking ourselves, well, who is this Jesus guy? And is he really the Messiah? Well, somebody's got to come and, uh, and be a traitor to him, and it happens for 30 pieces of silver. Is there anybody in history that we can pick that, that betrayed a Jewish carpenter guy for 30 pieces of silver? Let's root around in history. Oh, here's one. His name's Judas. And it looks just like the same stories as, as Jeremiah and Zechariah. Okay, well then, logic and, and, and thinking about all the prophecies this guy Jesus is fulfilling, here's another one. Jesus must be the Messiah, which means he's God, which means if he's God, I should pay attention to the things that he says and the things that he does, not go live selfishly, not just go do whatever I want. If God really exists and Jesus is him and he gave his life on the cross, that means something for me. I got to take notice of that and not just live selfishly like I want, like that whole big thing didn't happen. That's the whole point. God came as a man. Take notice. Don't do whatever you want with your life. That's a big thing right there to notice. That's the fulfillment that's talking about. 
And as it said in verse 10, look what it says. The 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on which the price had been set by the sons of Israel. That's the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Sanhedrin. And they gave for the potter's field. Don't miss these last words. As the Lord directed me. It was always God's plan from eternity to past to eternity to future. So the religious here, while they are, and I know we can make the case, fulfilling the ultimate plan of God, they're still breaking some of the plans of God, namely killing people. They're doing all these kinds of things, self-preservation, hypocrisy, murder, pride, all these things. They're, they're going against the plan of God for, for your life. Fifth one, religious actively fight against God's plan rather than do God's plan. I want my way. I want my, me to be self-preserved. I want things to happen. I don't care about this big, obvious story that's happening from creation to redemption of Jesus becoming man and all the prophecies that talk about him actually being. All that's not anything to me because I really like to go do what I want today. I've got money to spend on myself, etc. I've got these things I want to have in my life and just ignoring this huge thing out there, which is God really exists. And we should take note specifically at the cross. Religious fight against God, God's plan rather than actually do it. In contrast, Jesus fought for us and completes God's plan by going to the cross and saving us. Jesus is the antithesis of this. He completes God's plan. Obedient. We saw that in Gethsemane a few weeks ago where he says, yes, I'm going to do it and ultimately goes and saves us. So as we're concluding, just a couple things I want you to see. Judas comes And in verse 4, he looks at them and he says, I have sinned. I have sinned. That is a first step towards real repentance. But in Judas's, it wasn't. The Bible in the Old Testament records other times where people come and have this kind of half-hearted confession where it's not really repentance. Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Achan, who stole the money and it got killed, everybody, everybody just stoned him. He said, I have sinned. Saul, the the king that God said is not the good king, I want David. He said, I have sinned. Balaam, he said, I have sinned. Confession of sin is good, but it does not save. There are plenty of people in the Bible that say, I have sinned. Judas, I have sinned. But it doesn't mean they're saved. What saves is trusting in Christ and repenting of your sin. Confessing of your sin, repenting of it, and then saying, the only hope I have is Jesus. He's the only hope I have. The second thing I want you to see in the conclusion is those first few words there in in verse three. Then when Judas was his betrayer, Saul, here it is, Jesus was condemned. That's huge. We should not just fly past Jesus was condemned, especially in light of Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was condemned for me. Jesus was condemned for you. Because Jesus was condemned, I don't have to be condemned. Jesus was condemned for us. Since he was condemned, we don't have to be. Repent of sin. The Bible also speaks of someone else that said, I have sinned. It talks about, it talks about Pharaoh. It talks about Achan. It talks about Saul. It talks about Judas. They all said, I have sinned. But there's somebody else that said, I have sinned. David said, I have sinned. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, Nathan comes to him and he says, you sin. And David says, I have sinned. And then he goes on to write Psalm 51, which I encourage you to read this week, Psalm 51. From beginning to end, it's 20-something verses of what a true heart of repentance actually looks like. One verse, in verse 4, 
This is what real repentance looks like. This is where soul is conformed unto God. He writes in Psalm 51.4, after he says he sinned to Nathan, he writes this when he's talking about repentance. To God, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's not just talk. That's not just outward actions to try to make yourself look good. That's repentance. Outward actions are certainly a part of repentance. But this is just the works of religious people. We don't want to just be religious. We want to be followers of Christ. With our hearts set on Christ. Because he was condemned, we don't have to be. And we trust and we confess, but we also repent completely. Metanoia. Only hope I have is Jesus. Not in any of these outward actions. Spurgeon, as he's commenting on this one little section about the traitor, he's, he kind of rewrites a little hymn by a guy named John Rippon. Spurgeon writes this. Lord, when I read the traitor's doom to his own place consigned, that's what it says in Acts 125, what holy fear and humble hope alternate fill my mind. Traitor to thee, I too have been, but saved by matchless grace. That's the gospel. We too have been traitors, but we're saved by matchless grace. Or else the lowest, hottest hell had surely been my place. Just highlighting what we're saved from. We're certainly saved to something victorious and great. Saved to salvation and life with Christ. But we are escaping hell because of, as he says, matchless grace. What reason to worship? We don't have to perform and fake it and be religious. Instead, we cast ourselves, repent of our sin, confess, trust Christ only, and be forgiven. And we don't do works out of trying to look good to benefit ourselves. We do good, good works out of worshipful response to Christ. What a great reason to worship. So as we're going into a time of reflection here, We've got a few songs for you to think about it. And I just say this. We talked about five dangers of religiosity. You, I'm guessing, if you've been here a while, believe and love and trust the gospel more deeply than you could probably put into words. But all of us are a little legalists at heart. And if there's something that we've talked about here that you know you're still kind of performing on the outside, hiding stuff, you're not fooling God. Confess that. Repent of that. And then stand and worship saying, my whole heart is yours, God. I'm not just going to do outward stuff. My whole heart's yours. Against you and you only have I sinned. Let's give him all the glory that he's due because he turns the religious into worshipers. Let's pray. God, you're so kind to us. You're so good to us. You've been so generous to us in Christ. I pray that you would come now and fill this room with the Spirit and that we would respond with declarations of worship to you because of what you've done. If anybody here needs to go through and do the hard work of repentance and confession, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be kind and merciful. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Not fear, kindness. And that as we repent, this is always a good thing for us. Not something that's meant to scare us, but instead that's supposed to lead us into a deep abiding love for you. Be with us now as we worship and I pray, God, that our outward actions would match the response of our heart as we worship. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.